0: Welcome to Advaya Talks, a collection of recordings from some of our favourite events and gatherings. Advaya is a global platform for transformative education that explores what it means to be alive today. Looking at how we relate to the world around us, we connect ecology, spirituality and community to inspire inner transformation for outer change. Advaya was started by sisters Ruby and Christabel Reid. To find out more, you can visit us at advaya.co. In this week's thought-provoking episode, we join author, filmmaker, public speaker, and pioneer of the local economy movement, Helena Norberg-Hodge. Helena has been promoting an economics of personal, social, and ecological well-being for more than 40 years across three continents. In this week's episode, she shares her experiences in Ladakh and Bhutan, where she began to think about the destructive nature of a globalised economy that favours global traders over local traders and smaller businesses. She looks at the historical origins of our global economic system dating back to World War II and shares with us the increasing importance of taking a stand for a decentralised world and what she calls a global local movement, particularly as far as agriculture and food production are concerned. She has written several books, notably Ancient Futures, which raises important questions about the notion of progress and explores the root causes of the malaise of industrial society, as well as giving us inspiration for our own future, showing us that another way is possible.
1: Jason was looking at how this economic system destroys the natural world. I've ended up over the last 40 years, studying how this system is destroying people. And my eyes were open to this through experiences in Ladakh and Bhutan. And I hope you look at uh, my books and films and things to see this story because it was an amazing opportunity to see this economic system, this modern type of capitalism from the outside. Because when I arrived in Ladakh or little Tibet in 1975, they had been sealed off from the impacts of colonialism as well as modern economic development. And I found, I I was living in Paris, I was a linguist, I was going out, I fought for six weeks to help make a documentary film about this part of the world that had been sealed off for political reasons. No one had been allowed to go there. So I thought I was going to be there for six weeks. Well, it's ended up being 43 years or something. Part of the year, part of every year. Because when I got there, I encountered the happiest, healthiest people I had ever ever met. I became absolutely fascinated by this region where You know, none of our modern technologies were there, no growth whatsoever, no GDP, zero. In other words, these would be statistically the poorest of the poor on this planet. And yet, I found no real poverty. There was no unemployment, had never existed. There was none of the type of pollution that we have in modern society. And therefore, when I had a doctor do research for a few years, he couldn't find traces of cancer either. It may well have existed in some forms, but certainly not in the ways that it's now come in as part of this modern system with its carcinogens, the toxic pesticides, the fossil fuels, etc. But what I also saw was that this new development, this new growth, literally created poverty. It literally started very rapidly to create an intense competition for scarce jobs. The Jobs had never been scarce before because they had never been concentrated in the city around fossil fuels and a type of modern development that is supposedly benefiting all of us. But in Ladakh and also in Bhutan, where I worked over a five-year period, it was so clear that this system is extremely destructive to human beings, not just to the natural world. By creating this intense competition for suddenly scarce jobs, what they created was intense competition and with it conflict between local groups that had lived side-by-side for 500 years. In the case of Ladakh, it was Buddhists and Muslims. There had never been group conflict, and within a decade, tensions started emerging, and after about 15 years, there was even bloodshed. In Bhutan, in the same period, bloodshed uh, between Hindus and Buddhists. So so I got a very, very intimate uh, view of how this economic system increases conflict. Doesn't mean that there was never conflict before of any kind. Doesn't mean that there was never competition. But when you pull people away from decentralized, smaller towns and villages, away from an economy where everything they need comes from their resources, or at least, I shouldn't say everything, the majority of basic needs are met from the region. When you pull people into urban centers and create a dependence on outside forces, what happens is this conflict and and even bloodshed. What I had my eyes open to very early also was how this economic system operates through hidden subsidies and through a regulatory framework that punishes local businesses and favors global businesses. So what I saw suddenly there was that butter that had been transported for more than a week over the Himalayas was selling for half the price of local butter. As I try to understand this magic and as I even back then would give talks at the IMF for the World Bank, economists would just tell me, oh, no, no, this, this is not supposed to be happening. This is not happening. But actually, I ended up studying informally because my, um, my work in Ladakh, I ended up giving public talks around the world. There was a lot of interest around the world, so I ended up in Mongolia in Kenya and you know, working with groups from all over the world. And I found that everywhere I went, food from thousands of miles away would almost inevitably cost less than food from a mile away. Now, in my organization, in Local Futures, we are still pretty alone at trying to raise awareness about this issue. When you study it, you will see that the main reason for climate change, as well as instability, competition, and bloodshed has to do with a globalized economy that favors global traders over local traders or smaller businesses. What you'll see is that countries are now routinely importing and exporting the same product. So the UK exports both butter and milk in roughly the same quantities that it imports butter and milk. The US, when we originally did studies on this, it was about a billion tons of beef exported in a year, about a billion tons of beef imported in a year. Now, when we talk about climate change, when we talk about this uh, incredible and disastrous impact of GDP growth on natural resources, Let's look at the structures. Let's look at the incredible unfair system that we have, and let's do so in a way that does does genuinely make us revolutionaries. But I would argue and always um, speak for nonviolent revolution, compassionate revolution, kind revolution. Because most of what's going on, from my point of view, is because of blindness, blindness from the grassroots to the very top. In fact, what I'm finding is the higher up the ladder you go of corporate, or if you want to say economic and political power, the higher up the ladder you go, the greater the blindness. Why? Because as you go up the power ladder, you're more and more dependent on mediated information. I already found this years ago. I've been going around the world trying to raise awareness about these issues. And it was so clear. You know, you get to talk to an activist or to a normal person out there. You can have plenty of time and they have the time to hear a holistic, systemic analysis. You go up a little bit, even trying to get something into radio. You have a lot more time than you do when you go to television. When you're in the political scene, you're talking to a member of parliament, you have more time. You talk to a minister, less time. A few times I've seen prime ministers, and you know, snap, snap, you've got, you know, three seconds to uh, communicate. And I've also seen that the same people who start out as environmental activists. When they become a member of parliament, they're suddenly starting to change their tune. When they become a minister, even more so. If they do become prime minister, you know, bye bye completely. And you have a situation of people retiring and coming back. You know, so you have generals who join the peace movement once they're out of their official position. It's a very strange thing that happens which we probably don't have time to go into. I have theories about it. I think one of the main problems is blindness combined with the desire to belong. I think we all want to be part of community. And I see a lot of these people as they go up the ladder in power, they want to be part of the club. Being part of the club as a CEO means that you've got to have that second yacht and you must have three homes or you will be marginalized. So there is a, an escalation that goes on. Anyway, what I'm, as you'll see, I'm not as structured as Jason. I'm talking uh, in, a, in a holistic, systemic way from experience and hope you can follow my train of thought. But I want to come back to this crucial issue which is that when we talk about rich countries having exploited poor countries, and when we look at that scarcity of resources, which is very real, we need to remember that the majority of citizens were never consulted, were never in any way involved in creating an economic system that led to such extreme exploitation of poor countries, but also of poor people in rich countries. We were not consulted about aid packages, supposedly aid packages, that were actually a way of selling industries from the Western world. They were actually a form of exploitation in the name of aid. We were not asked whether we wanted to use our taxes in that way. So I think it's really important that we put out a message which does not make the average person in the West feel personally responsible or guilty. We also, this is what we're trying to do in our work, the economics of happiness work. We're trying to show just how much we have lost in terms of real wealth. So that we can show that what we're trying to move towards in this new economy, in this new form of doing business, is something that we would all welcome. As Jason was saying, we're talking about gaining more time. We are not aware of the way in which we have been pushed to run faster and faster and faster to stay in place. I've worked with economists in England and America who have written books about how As GDP goes up, the majority of people are getting poorer. So my friend Richard Douthwaite wrote a book called The Growth Illusion about the UK, where he showed how as GDP was going up in the 90s, the average spending power of the average citizen was going down so we're working, we can see it, you know, both mother and father have to have jobs to just stay in place to pay for the mortgage, to send children to school to do the things that are required by most people. Working hours are longer, and we're and yeah we're working harder and harder for less gain in America. Juliet Shaw, at that time she was a harvard based economist, wrote a book called um uh, no, I forgot what was. Her, her, her book was about how the average American was having to work one month more per year to just stay in the same place. So we need to really spell out, in order to win over and to create a powerful movement for change, one of the most important things we need to do is to spell out the enormous deprivation and and suffering actually that this entails for us. We are constantly bombarded with the message that we're doing so well. You know, this is the the message, the sort of happy, happy message in the media and in the commercial system is how well we are doing. And our biggest problem in terms of discussing growth is that people are made to believe that this GDP increasing is in order to keep them in a job. is in order to make sure that they have enough money in their pocket. Look at the truth. The gap between rich and poor in every single country is escalating dramatically. I know of no single exception, including Bhutan and Ladakh, including my native country of Sweden, I'm sorry to tell you that the Scandinavian governments have gone in the same direction because as Jason said, both left and right have subscribed to the same formula for, of GDP. But what we need to talk more about, Jason, I hope we can talk about that in our discussion, is how after the Second World War, it's not only that GDP was brought in, what was brought in was an idea of formally globalizing economic activity. The idea was that politicians with bankers and corporations at their side sat down at the Bretton Woods meeting after the Second World War to plan how to avoid another depression and also how to avoid another world war. Their idea was that we need to integrate economic activity worldwide through a series of trade treaties. Actually what these trade treaties involved, the integration meant let's support global businesses to invade every country and to create dependence in every country on the giants. So we now have a system that is not only so crazy because of GDP, but it's a system in which our taxes are used to subsidize and aid global traders and global trade. Now that support takes the form of continual deregulation of their activity. The free trade treaties are about freedom for global banks and global corporations to move around freely. In those treaties, they have clauses called ISDS clauses, which stands for Investor State Dispute Settlements. And those clauses say governments are signing in black and white, we won't do anything that might impede your profit-making ability. If we do, you can sue us. And these suits are happening in kangaroo courts where literally, you know, a Swedish nuclear power company is suing Germany for 3.7 billion because Germany decided to phase out the nuclear power after Fukushima. You have. Lawsuits because countries are trying to ban a toxic chemical, things that have been proven to be harmful to health, they get sued by corporations under this rule. Now, this key element of how we end up supporting giants that are both decimating species and, and uh, you know biodiversity, massively increasing energy consumption, and with it pollution, as well as creating a bigger and bigger gap between rich and poor, as well as creating more and more job insecurity worldwide. This is crazy. So we need to look at what's taxed, which businesses are taxed, what is subsidized, and we need to look at regulations. So taxes, subsidies, regulations along with GDP, that's the system. These are the mechanisms that are being used blindly by left and right, taking us rapidly in the wrong direction. So let's look at this trajectory now with eight men having, controlling greater wealth than half the global population. And as I say, in every country, the gap growing. One of the consequences is that as people feel more and more insecure in their livelihood, more and more insecure in their identity, the end result is the fear, the the racism, the anger that leads now to election of Trump-like dictators, a swing to the right by people who are feeling insecure. And so the tendency is to blame the other because there isn't enough discussion of the system that is actually creating the problem. So it's really, really urgent that we look at this in a systemic way. I'm very happy that left-leaning think tank called TNI, the Transnational Institute, is one of the few global think tanks. Um, They recently published a paper of mine on localization and I hope I do have, now I want to talk about the positive side of this, Um, because it's been very difficult to persuade the left that decentralizing or localizing is actually a structural systemic path towards rebuilding and renewing not only community, but rebuilding and renewing biodiversity, rebuilding and starting some real path towards genuine democracy. We must decentralize. How far we decentralize economic power, that's what needs to be decentralized or localized. This is not about retreat into some narrow isolationism. Our biggest hope is that the new economy movement is an international movement, that we work together across boundaries particularly that we have a deeper dialogue. So, uh, unfortunately, until now, we've had a really hard time persuading people on the left that localizing makes sense because there's been this uh, partly well-funded ideas and very often by corporate-funded think tanks, neoliberal think tanks, that keep pushing localization into this corner of some kind of narrow, selfish reaction on the part of uh, middle class, privileged people. It is so completely wrong because in localizing, the truth is for those of us who have been born and bred on a fossil fuel, industrial, urban economy, localizing is a challenge. We're talking about actually getting off the back of people in the global south and becoming more self-reliant using fewer resources and so it's it's exactly the opposite of what's believed but anyway i do feel quite optimistic about the way that thinking is changing recently because you know the key is again that we understand that both left and right in our political and economic elites across the world have been following the same basic formula and ended up uh, basically servants to global corporations. And what Jason was saying about the banking system, you know, we really must understand that when we allow deregulated global banks and finance institutions to make money out of thin air, And to produce what's estimated to be 97, whoever does that counting, I don't know. It's very hard to estimate, really. But this is a general consensus that about 97% of the money in circulation is this make-believe money. And with those huge amounts of money, by the way, essentially created by and and monitored by algorithms. In other words, robots. Robots are determining the value of our currency, the value of our food, the value of our rents. It's an insane, crazy, speedy global system. And I was very pleased to hear Ruby talk about the need to look at decentralized infrastructures. And that's partly what's happening from the ground up Around the world, what every day gives me hope is that there's a human intelligence, perseverance, and collaborative spirit that's giving birth to what I call a global local movement. First and center in this movement is food. And this is another thing I think we we really need to remind ourselves that whenever we think about the economy, Let's be sure to put food at the center. Don't allow economists to tell you that that's another category. Food production is the only production of something that every person on the planet needs roughly every day of their life. We have a system with its hidden taxation in inequality where, you know, the local and national are taxed and the global don't pay taxes. The local and national are regulated. The global are deregulated. Now, in that unfair system, you have a situation where our food is coming from further and further away, longer and longer distances in an era of climate change, in an era of mountains of plastic. The bulk of it linked ultimately to the food system. So the global food economy is the most important sector to transform and it's being transformed from the bottom up. It's, it's a movement that's growing, the global local food movement, which does not recognize itself as a movement, but in my work, working in, you know, in, on every continent, seeing that everywhere you go, there are new local food initiatives. It's, a, it's an intelligent, intuitive response to a crazy system. In the system of hidden subsidies that we have for the global, this local food cannot always be as reasonably priced as it should be. But don't fall into the trap of thinking of local, healthy, fresh food as some kind of elitist, you know, uh, fashion. Don't let all these think tanks persuade you of that. Having right to diverse, healthy, fresh food should be considered one of the basic human rights. We should be working for a world where everyone has the right to have access to that and where the systems are transformed in that direction. They are being transformed from the bottom up. I know the farmer who started the first CSA in Beijing, and it's like this little jewel called Little Donkey Farm in Beijing, you know, this gray polluted city. It's this wonderful farm community-supported agriculture, you know, that people are so drawn to. People long for connection to the land and to know more about the sources of their food, have contact with animals, with the plants, with the seeds. I also see around the world that all the activities around local food, including a wonderful project near us in Devon where prisoners can come and garden cook and eat together. Many of these men have never sat down in a community setting and eaten together. Some of them are afraid of it in the beginning, but it is it is a remarkable healing that comes with that combination of being productive on the land and eating, cooking and eating in community. There are stories of torture victims where Psychotherapists have realized that actually working in the garden while talking about trauma is incredibly healing. There are so many examples of delinquent youth being taken out on the land. Sometimes it's also out into wilderness, but there is something particularly wonderful about the food production, about learning how to be a genuinely productive person in that very tangible, embodied way. So I could go on forever about local food, and I know I don't have time, but I do do think that we absolutely must not underestimate the importance of this movement, and we need to do everything we can to make it grow more and faster. And the more and faster should not be like my friend at Riverford in Devon, where we were actually involved when it first started. It was a local food box scheme, and has now become, you know, across the UK. The consumer or the citizen, we, we need to be more aware of the importance of scale, more aware of the importance of distance as linked to energy consumption, pollution, and packaging. We need to be more aware of the way that shorter distances between the farm and the table, very, very importantly, stimulate, create a market pressure towards diversification. This is fundamental. There is a link between the global food economy and the giant supermarkets going into Walmart and monoculture on the land. Monoculture can never produce as much as diversity, never. And we've been sold this big fat lie that we need big farms, we need the supermarkets to feed the world. Just yesterday, I think it was a new propaganda piece from Syngenta, the biggest pesticide company in the world, arguing that we cannot feed the world without pesticides and and other chemicals. So please look up of independent smaller businesses that are not operating as subservient um, um, entities to the giant global economy but are genuinely there to serve the local community. I hope you all know about Froome and their form of direct democracy. Who who doesn't know about Froome? Oh okay well there In Froom, they're practicing a form of democracy at the level of the local council, where essentially all the councillors have decided they're not going to join their party political direction. Even if they may have an inclination towards conservative or labor, they are there as local representatives. So it's a very interesting experiment in politics i would argue that the decentralization and localization that is most urgently needed is the economic one because the real political power today is the economic power and to the extent that we don't look at that economic power we end up again and again falling prey to essentially to misinformation and to yeah, so, uh, uh, there can, there's a type of political. Uh, there are many attempts, as you could see with Scotland here, and now in many parts of the world, where people are so fed up with being dominated by distant bureaucracies and distant forces that they have no control over. So, logically, the first thing they turn to is the idea of a political decentralization. However, that can be quite dangerous in the current climate where the real political power is economic. Uh, And when I say dangerous, I also mean even with campaigns to get land back to indigenous groups. It can often make it much easier for a corporation to go in and bribe half the community with only a million dollars when they're only dealing with a small population. So the first agenda needs to be how do we break up, how do we start shifting towards more local control economically. So. Starting business alliances with local independent businesses there to serve the community and where there is a clear and accountable, visible thread. Sometimes it can extend beyond national boundaries. Sometimes you can have an ethical project buying something, some tea or something from a so-called poor country. But beware that when you are going across that poor country, rich country divide, you are subjecting people to the vagaries of that algorithm which determines the value of currencies, and they can suddenly find that their product is selling for much less. It's, it's a vulnerability that is um, that makes it very, you have to be extremely careful and really be on the ground uh, in whatever place that you're working with. Um, There's a general assumption that if you can help farmers in the poor countries to sell in the West, they're gonna get a better price, and that's a good thing. Generally speaking, that does not work so well for a number of reasons. And for that, I hope you would read my book, Ancient Futures, which uh, is available here, uh, and which was, by the way, translated into over, over 45 languages. We lost track of some of the indigenous languages. And so, from all those language groups, from all over the world, I got the message again and again the story you tell of Ladakh is our story, too. And that's what's given me a lot of energy to try to keep, you know, getting this message out. Um, It's a very, you know, it's a sort of a, a situation that makes these issues much clearer in a holistic way. And maybe, um, yeah, I guess I just want to finish by really making that link to the economics of happiness. As I said, when I first arrived in Ladakh, I encountered people who were more radiantly happy than any I had ever encountered. It actually took me many years to appreciate just how deep and real that happiness was. Uh, and it, when I would go back to Sweden, Already in the the mid-70s, I became aware of how, what a huge price we had paid. I mean, Sweden at that time was considered one of the most successful examples of industrial modernity. What became so obvious already in the mid-70s, of all the dwelling, uh, more than half the dwellings in Stockholm, one person living alone. The loneliness that led to depression, that led to alcoholism, was such a clear price that we have paid with modernity. And it was far more extreme in Scandinavia than in England. In Ladakh, in every household, you had roughly 10 10 people. That meant that every mother had about 10 live-in caretakers for every baby. It meant, you know, the older siblings, the aunts, the uncles. It was a community-based way of life that we're not going to regain, you know, from one day to the next. But what does happen with people who start understanding the importance of deeper connection is that we can make a much more conscious effort to connect, and we can do that even, you know, by setting up a group where we, you know, basically link up with like-minded people who want to do more sharing and caring. Now, that needs to be place-based. It needs to be within relatively close reach. Uh, and of course, we can have wonderful community building across the internet, but. At the deepest human level, what I saw in Ladakh, what was the recipe, the most important recipe for happiness was this intergenerational community fabric, which also meant that the polarization between genders was not so extreme. Another whole story. I could write a book about that, but it's a, you know, a lot of it is in the book, but it's a, you know, it's a huge issue. And there were many reasons why the gap the gender gap was so much smaller and why the men seem to maintain more of their feminine side and the women are more empowered and stronger and, and more vocal role, which was not understood by Western anthropologists who didn't understand that the real economic power was at the level of the household. So in our culture you know, it's the outside, it's the formal economy that's important. There it was the so-called informal economy. Again, many, many stories there to tell, but the other deep, deep lesson was the connection to nature, meaning also to, to animals, to plants, to place. That deep sense of connectedness and on a, on a sort of daily basis was clearly part of how we evolved so now as i went back to sweden i heard stories of you know these people all alone depressed and alcoholic even having a goldfish could improve their spirits or longevity you know of now we have lots of evidence also of people suffering from depression yeah how a walk in the park uh can make such a difference that Essentially, recovering those connections to one another and to nature is the key to happiness. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Advaya Talks. If you liked what you heard, consider exploring our online courses with the leading minds of our time at advaya.co.